Welcome to episode 354 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Your enunciation is on point as usual. <laughs> I felt like I was seeing in your face that really clear diction. It was fantastic. I try. I do try. <laughs> I take lessons. I'm like, many mumbling mice. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I know there's all those things, those like exercises for your tongue and your lips that you're supposed to say. I can never remember what they are, like the murdered melons, many murdered melons, like stuff like that. Yeah. I suppose that does help. And oh. when you're speaking professionally or even casually or putting your voice out into the world, it probably does something to help you out and I don't know, make you sound better. I guess maybe here's a free affirmation. Although all of our affirmations are free. Totally free. There is an app called Speakio. Have you ever heard of this? Yes, I have actually. Yeah. So I've, I used it very, very lightly, uh, but it's a, it's like a speech training app and it's not just like, it's not just about diction, although like pronunciation and diction is part of it, but it'll actually like listen to you deliver a speech and it'll like make comment on your, your tone and your pace and your volume. So I don't know if you're a public speaker, I guess there you go. So I'm also going to tag onto this uh, doubly free, free squared affirmation in that same vein. We didn't anticipate this. We didn't talk about this. It's just happening right now. So everybody get ready. I'm going to jump on that and say, if you're into understanding how your voice impacts people, if you're a person that speaks at all, then I would recommend Roger Love's book, Raise Your Voice. It's actually about these very techniques. And it's not so much about like saying, hey, listen, you speak for a living, you do TED Talks, you should understand how to do that better. This is more like in all of life, like your voice is so much who you are. And one of the criticisms levied in, in his book is that certain types of disciplines or jobs tend to have different kind of voice inflections. For instance, he says, bankers tend to speak in just three notes. I know these people and it is horrible <laughs> to listen to them on, on any occasion, giving like even something that's like the most amazing talk. It sounds like the worst thing. And we've talked about this, like even when you're singing in church, where you're singing some like amazing hymn of praise to God, it sounds like we cannot be any less joyful than we are right now. So I'm going to let everybody in. Here we go on a secret right now. And that is when you hear me give the introduction to the podcast, as I just did, I never go up and then down. I'm always actually in, increasing the tone and the notation, like the notes of my voice up, because if you come up and then go down, it sounds kind of sad. You want to bring that energy first. Like when you speak to a group, when you introduce yourself, you want to come up really high. And then after you have a moment of expressing your excitement, then you want to say, it is so good to be with you today. So it's all of that matters. And I think when you hear somebody and you think, wow, I'm really captivated by the speaking. I would say in part, that's because you're listening to them sing by the way that they speak. So when you bring melody to your voice, all of that matters. So Roger Love talks about in his book, but this is like a really great way for everybody to like gain, and I mean this in the best possible sense, like some more influence or some more interest in what they're saying just by the way that they speak. Yeah, that's good stuff. As someone who used to make phone calls for a living as a scheduling secretary, uh, who sat in a room with other scheduling secretaries, I can absolutely get on board with the idea that like certain kinds of um, jobs or professions have like a like a default cadence that gets developed. 
Yes. And it drove me nuts because it was like, I would just hear the same cadence over and over and over again. And it was just not good. Yeah. Now everybody knows our secret or at least mine. That's how, but these things matter. And God has made us to have interest and to appreciate the way in which the voice rises and falls. So our quick way to do that is to practice in your own right. Think about the way you speak to your spouse, your friends, when you're at church, when you're with your colleagues, how is it that you speak? And the more that you can bring some rising and falling into it, the more interesting it, it just is. And again, I go, I challenge you, go listen to speeches and you'll find that. The only person we would cut to right now who would say, how dare you, is Jonathan Edwards. But like, you know, there there is a, a place for that. No, there's not. <laughs> Even Jonathan Edwards later in his life was like, yeah, the monotone thing's not so good. <laughs> After you heard George Whitfield, he was like, maybe I should like, I don't know, talk like a human being when I preach. Yeah. That's, that's true. Again, these are like lovely things that God has given us, not so that we might manipulate, but that so we might communicate effectively. And I, it's worth understanding. So a little explored space of who you are and a gift that probably God has given you innately to have as your voice. So you, you might as well explore it. So, and speaking of exploration and speaking of voice and speaking, we're still in this midst of the summer of prayer, looking at the Lord's prayer and we're back into it today. And I don't think we received any criticism for this, but I myself was thinking we, there might be a legitimate objection here. And that is in our last episode, we spoke about this phrase in, in God's prayer, Jesus' prayer that he gives his disciples where he says, and forgive us our debts as we have also, presuming this, forgiven our debtors. And we didn't really hand wave it away, but we spoke a lot about this word debts, debts over trespasses, though they're both appropriate. And we didn't talk a lot about this idea of forgiveness. And I, as you and I kind of debriefed afterwards, uh, we kind of determined that we hadn't really revisited this idea of forgiveness at all. And it seems altogether appropriate to take that on in this conversation as we look at the Lord's Prayer. It's basically, I've come up with this, in my mind at least, this metaphor, this comparison of taking a train ride with the Lord's Prayer. And I think that some of us, if we're well-versed or familiar with the Lord's Prayer, we can get on the Bullet Express. Maybe some people feel this way about the entire series we're doing, where it's kind of like you get on the train, you put your head down, and you just want to go from point A to point B. Yes, the Lord's Prayer is important. Yes, I'll get on. Yes, let me get off at the end. And instead, the approach we've been taking over this summer is... Let's take this really nice, measured, long train ride where we go into the viewing car and we look at all the vistas. And maybe sometimes we get off the train altogether and we go visit a locale and we set ourselves there and we pitch a tent and we look at it and we appreciate it. And then only then do we get back on the train. And that's really what we're trying to do today is though we already looked at this phrase, we're coming back to it. I think we've disembarked at this point, just temporarily. So that we might live in this space for a period of time, see what it's like to be in this place and not just travel through it, not just observe it, but set some roots down at least for a time period. So we're going to get to this, but first we got to get to affirmations and denials. And I'm just going to start with the denial. Is that okay? Let's do it. So, and I think we decide this might be a joint denial that you don't know about yet. It's true. Are you okay with that? I'm totally fine with that. Okay. So here's what I'm dying against. Uh, it started for me with this denial against fraud generally. Fraud is like just so ubiquitous now. And having worked for a long period of time in the financial industry, fraudsters are so incredibly clever and they just keep finding their way through. And of course, you create some kind of new screen or filter and the fraudsters just find either a way around it or they just have a different approach. And here's what I find just astounding is that a lot of fraud that's being committed right now, like in this moment, especially of the financial nature, is the kind in which 
these fraudsters creates some kind of half truth by which they contact you yeah. and then they convince you of their identity. It's, it's pure social engineering. And then all they do is they just keep asking you for information. And by that point, they've gained your trust to a degree that you're willing to give it or you're afraid to not give it. Yeah. And I heard a pastor recently speak about this idea of fraud. And then I thought he very cleverly parlayed this into what is the equivalent of a theological fraud alert? That is, what do we have to do to make sure that when we hear something or processing and discerning, that there's something that pops up to us and says, be careful, watch out, do not engage any further, do not give away your social security number. What is the logical equivalent of that? So I'm denying against this fraud generally, and everybody should be aware that your financial institution will never ask you for your password. That is just standard. But beyond this, I'm denying against that maybe for all that effort that we put into making sure that we're protected in other ways, are we protecting ourselves from theological fraud? We get to consume so much information these days. We have access to so many things, so many things to read and to watch. Are we getting theological fraud alerts? And of course, I think you and I would promulgate, the only way you really do that is by making sure you know it's true yes. so that what's counterfeit feels ugly or gross or not right. And so that's the theological fraud alert uh, as, in so much as I can discern it. So it's against fraud and especially theologically fraud. Yeah, I, I, I'm totally with you. I think, you know, to maybe like jump on on a practical level, we have hammered in like the idea that you understand what is false and you recognize what is false primarily by really, truly understanding what is true, right? So the, right. the classic example, of course, is that the bank teller can often just feel or or se like sense when a, a $100 bill is not real. And if you were to ask them specifically, what was it about this that is not real, they might not even be able to tell you, but they would they could just tell. Or a good example is this. I, I just mentioned a little bit ago, I worked as, I worked as a, a scheduling secretary Anyone else who's worked like an office job for a long period of time probably resonates with this. Like you, you get a feel for like your office equipment. And I remember I came back from vacation one time and as a prank, someone had swapped my stapler out for another stapler that was the exact same model. And for like a week, I was like, something just feels off. And every yeah, time I mentioned that they would laugh. And there was nothing outwardly different. I could just feel the difference. I couldn't quite place what it was, but I could feel the difference. It's funny. I actually still, I took that stapler with me now through three other jobs at the hospital. I brought that stapler with me. Um, but another way that we learn about fraud is by recognizing some of the like vectors of attack. So like if you learn what a common way that spam emails or fish emails the, the common tricks they use, then that's another way you start to learn. So like right. if it's a a company that is emailing you um, that is telling you you ordered something and maybe you've ordered from that company before, but like the, the email feels a little bit off. So here's a, here's an example. This didn't actually end up being a phishing email, but it certainly felt like it. I ordered some soccer jerseys from a website called projersey.net, which is a, a Chinese company. And I got an email from them saying, your soccer jersey has been held up in customs and we need you to, uh, we need you to agree to us generating a new order. All of the emails just smelled like a fraud email. 
right? It came from a, a slightly different email address. The formatting was slightly different. So I was very cautious when I replied and I just said, yes, I agree. I didn't share anything else. I didn't say any anything besides, yes, I agree. It turns out that this, this was just one of those quirks of working with a company that is in a different country with a different standard of professionalism. It just, they, they had different emails for different purposes um, in, in the company. But recognizing the way that theological fraudsters attack the faith that's been once delivered all to the saints is important here. And, and here's an example I'm going to give. And this is not meant to be inflammatory. I hope that this doesn't end up on some sort of uh, podcast with a D and an L in the title. But James White, he's not a theological fraudster. Uh, so I, I'm trying to be cautious how I say this. But there are certainly, we've been direct, I've been direct about this. There are theological positions he's advancing, or more, more accurately, there are theological criticisms that he's leveling that I think are dangerous and misguided. Part of the problem with some of these alternate perspectives is they dress themselves up in similar enough sounding language. So the difference between biblicism and sola, sola fide or sola scriptura, rather, right? There's a difference between biblicism classically which it sounds great. Who wouldn't want to be a biblicist? Like, I want to be a biblicist. Biblicism is a specific term that has a specific meaning. So by calling himself a biblicist, he's adopting certain terms. That's a common thing that those who are, are, are arguing against the standard Christian theological perspective is. Here's another one. A lot of times people who hold errant views will spend a lot of time trying to convince you that you already believe what they're telling you. You already believe this position, so just it's just a little bit further than that. The first time I experienced this was um, I was debating a Roman Catholic on purgatory. And he spent probably, this was like a, a broadcast formal, like it wasn't a debate, but it was like a formal discussion argument. I was representing the, the Protestant side of things. He spent probably the first, I don't know, 15 minutes of his time arguing for the fact that Protestants already believe all of the things that are required for the doctrine of purgatory. Well, if we already believed in purgatory, we wouldn't be having the discussion. So rather than actually arguing for his position, he's trying to convince me that I already hold it. That's something that, that theological fraudsters commonly do. So it's not only a matter of identifying the truth and, and knowing the truth well, which of course we would point to the Reformed creeds and confessions, particularly the Westminster standards, as the standard, uh, subordinate standard that helps you to identify these things as a, as a sort of like a litmus test. Does this comport with what the Westminster standard says? Okay, if not, then we need to proceed very carefully. But also identifying the common ways that these theological frauds come in, and that's where the theological fraud alert comes in, right? Your bank doesn't flag every transaction that is out of the ordinary for you. There's a specific set of criteria and an algorithm that it uses to identify when it thinks someone is committing fraud versus me just traveling to another state on a, a business trip or something like that. It used to be that if, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you remember this. You used to have to call your bank and say, I'm going to be traveling to this state during these dates. And so if my credit card is used there, don't flag it for fraud. And I remember one time I went out of state and I forgot to do that. And my credit card got canceled because I didn't tell my bank that it's not like that anymore. They're much more sophisticated. They have specific ways of identifying what constitutes a fall, a fraud alert and what doesn't. We also need to learn those kinds of things. We need to have an internal algorithm in our head that is comparing what we know about how these theological fraudsters work with what we're seeing and being able to say that smells wrong. That doesn't pass the sniff check. 
I need to be cautious here. So I'm all about this. I think this is a great, a great denial and it's a great thing for us to have on our radar. I think it's a helpful analogy because we're all aware that there are people and schemes in the world that are going to try to get us to believe what is false when it comes to who we are and what our finances are. And again, I think to your point, the important thing to remember here is that most of these are most effective when they in, encompass some kind of half truth. And that's what makes it all the more difficult. Yeah. So it's not about discerning often between blatant error and the truth, but on something that sounds right or seems mostly right and then has some kind of edge to it. Yeah. So that's really where it matters that we be particularly discerning and really vigilant in making sure that we don't allow ourselves to get involved. And of course, the best way not to get hurt, either financially or otherwise, is not to get involved. So you're right. The best way, the first way to do that is there are many errors. There is one truth. So if you're looking for like the path of least resistance, the one that is easiest and most parsimonious with respect to the effort and energy involved, it would be to say, let me make sure that I understand the truth completely as best that I can, knowing that that will be my best first line of defense. And for that matter, one more thing about this, in terms of that first line of defense, it's up to everybody. It's not just up to your pastor or to your spouse. It's also up to you to make sure that as you're reading and processing in the same way that you ought to be also in every way testing everything that you hear, including your own pastors. And if you have a good pastor, the pastor is likely to say something to you like, open up the scriptures with me. Look yeah. at this with me. Let us look at what God says together to make sure that I'm always being held accountable to that full standard. And so that is the only rule of life, which is the scripture that God gives us. That's the truth. And we ought to measure everything according to that and nothing else. So anybody that tells you, of course, about another gospel, to Paul saying, let them be accursed. You know, that, that is like this, that is like the real consequence of fraud. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we get positive here and why don't you start with your affirmation here? Okay. Well, mine is like really kind. I don't want to say it's like a lowbrow. It's a kind of like affirmation that might be a little lowbrow, but it's lowbrow in the best possible way. And the kind of the for lack of a better phrase, guilty pleasure kind of way. It's a double affirmation of sorts. It's all in the food genus. And the first one is I've learned since living in Pennsylvania for quite some time now that I'm just going to affirm the cheesesteak. Everybody should go try to find <laughs> an authentic cheesesteak. And you would be thinking to yourself, listen, this sounds like a very simple proposition. I know bread. I know steak that's shaved and fried or cooked. And I know cheese. And you may be right. But the fact of the matter is the cheese steak, by its definition, though that word itself is very particular. And I found if you use it incorrectly, very offensive. Oh, yeah. So what you want to do, I would say, is if you can get yourself to a place where you can get a Philadelphia cheesesteak, you ought to try that. It's just worth it. It's a simple pleasure, but a delicious one. And likewise, I need to give my wife all the credit for this. I think that she has found this amazing combination of simple food items that's just absolutely delicious. It's the same type of thing. Again, simple things, simple means, normal things, common grace, delicious food. And I am a big proponent for breakfast for dinner. Oh, yeah. I don't know how you feel about that. I but about that. Yeah, it's almost like breakfast for dinner is better than just breakfast for breakfast. Yeah. Uh, at least like in the Western world, the way I'm conceiving of it. And here's what she's come up with. Again, simple things, but so delicious. A hash brown, so like a, a well-cooked, and you could get this uh, frozen or make yourself, whatever you like, but I'm talking about like crispy hash brown, crispy on the outside, it's kind of soft in the middle, it's got to be this way, you make it. Then on top of that, 
some uh, breakfast sausage patty, preferably a little bit spicy. You need to get a little bit of response in there. So it's got to have some spice to it. And then on top of that, just, and I guess, now depending on what part of the world or country you're in, people are going to debate with me on this, my language, over easy egg. What in the where I live, they would call a dippy or runny egg. So we're talking about an egg that the yolk is not completely cooked. Just these three things. You don't need any bread. Just stack them up, cut through that egg, and eat these three things. It is so rich and satisfying and simple. And really, like these are mostly flavors that God has made. You know, like there's not too much to them, but this simple pleasure of egg stacked on some kind of like pork stacked on some kind of like fried potato is just incredible. It is more, and again, proof that God loves us and wants us to be filled with joy. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I need to log off and go make that right now. (laughs) Sounds super good. Again, it's like, there's not much to it, but sometimes like the most amazing foods. And I think like every culture has this combination of things. You're talking about like protein, carb, and a starch and fat, like some kind of protein that that's it. it. It's really that, simple. It almost came to like, love God, love others. That's it. It's <laughs> straightforward. But again, just like the cheesesteak, I guess I'm affirming these simple common grace pleasures, these normal to mean that God gives us where we can, it's not just about eating food that replenishes you and gives you energy, but is it not amazing that God gives us things that are great to taste yeah. that like we love, that we appreciate that move us in some kind of way? Because you know how it is like, if your hunger is the best spice, but you bite it or something like that, you're like, this is so good. Yeah. Like that response is just ought to lead us to amazing doxology. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all about that. I, I remember growing up as a kid, my mom, we would always do sunny side up eggs, right? So not over easy, like even more runny eggs than over easy. So sunny side up eggs and we would have hash browns and we would have toast. We wouldn't usually do a protein or like a, a meat, but we would dip the bread into the yolk. And then when the nice. yolk was all gone, we would cut the egg up and mix it all up with the hash browns. Nice. And that was like the that was like the way we did it. And I remember the first time I did that when I moved out east, people looked at me like I was just the monster for doing it that way. I was like, just try it. It's delicious. And they did. And they were like, that's delicious. So <laughs> I'm all about that. I feel like maybe I'm going to just go do that for dinner instead of whatever it was I was planning on doing. Yeah, it's good and it's simple. It's easy to make. But uh, again, it's that it, I think, and I don't want to get like overtly spiritual, but honestly, that's our preserve. So, no <laughs> pun intended, uh, especially since we're talking about breakfast food. You know, the fact of the matter is that thing is so straightforward. It shouldn't be that good, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is exactly how God works. He uses these normal means in all of our life, whether we talk about bread and water or, or baptism or, sorry, bread and wine and water and baptism, like all this stuff is in some ways on the face. It just shouldn't be this good. It shouldn't be this moving or significant to us, but God imbues it in such a way. Yeah. So of course, like I'm not for the sake of the emails we will receive at info.reformbrotherhood.com. I am not, of course, equating what I just said with baptism or the Lord's <laughs> Supper. I am saying though, it's just a lovely thing in this world that God could have clearly made it so that we consume or receive nutrients and we're more or less agnostic to the way in which they affect us, that they have no taste and they're bland. And that's not the way he's created the world. That's an amazing common grace. Like beyond just the rain falling on the just and the unjust, yeah. the fact that potatoes, fried potatoes taste good to everybody is a pretty amazing thing. I'm just, I'm just in my head, I'm seeing somebody furiously typing on Twitter, this just in, Reform Brotherhood advocates using egg and hash browns in their <laughs> communion. Yeah. 
I'm not, not advocating that. I'm not saying that. And, and before, for some reason, it moves in that direction. You ought to give us your affirmation and save That's us. True. Yeah. So this falls in sort of that same vein that I've been on for, I don't know, it's probably been a year now of kind of like productivity, common grace, atomic habit stuff. Um, I've mentioned it a couple times and I've, I've, I think I'm at the point where I'm ready to formally call myself a runner. Uh, whoa. I know like this is a big deal. Uh, I'm just affirming building a running habit because I always I always pictured myself and considered myself as someone who couldn't couldn't run. Um, I had asthma growing up, and I I was just never was a good runner. Like even though I played soccer, I was always that one that, that kid that they like put in, and I I just like ran really hard for like 15, 20 minutes, and then the coach had to pull me because I just couldn't really tolerate anymore. So I always kind of pictured myself as like I had I would have to figure some other way of exercising out. And when I read Atomic Habits, um, probably about a year ago, maybe a little bit less than a year ago now, um, I kind of picked up on this idea of like, if you really want to build a habit of something, you have to start really small and just build up slowly. Like you can't, you can't just jump in at like level five of 10. You have to like start at level one and work your way up slowly. So this may not, there are probably people who are going to like shrug their shoulders and like kind of laugh at this, but I ran almost a mile and a half this morning and it wasn't even that difficult. And, and it was, it was really enjoyable and whatever it is, maybe it's not running. Maybe it's, maybe it's some other type of exercise. Maybe it's journaling. Maybe it's Bible memorization. Maybe it's Bible reading, whatever it is. There is a lot of simple joy that can be found in identifying something that you want to do. And in some ways, and this was part of like the atomic habits thing. This is part of what shifted my mindset on this is that like, not only are you identifying something you want to do, but with a habit, you're also sort of identifying something you want to be. So if you set yourself up to say, I want to build a habit of running every morning, that's fine. You may or may not have success. If you set yourself up to say, I want to build a habit so that I am a runner. That's okay. But if you say I'm a runner and this is how I'm going to, this is just what I do. And now I need to figure out like, how do I build my, how do I structure my life? How do I build a habit that supports this identity that I've, I want to become, I want to be, that's a much better approach. And so I, I'm just affirming for me, it was running. I don't, it's not like this has been some transformational life-changing epiphany. Like I go out and I like put feet on pavement every morning. That's, that's not like a major achievement, but there's something so satisfying about deciding I'm going to do this. This is something that I want to do. This is who I want to be. And then just doing it. And so for me, it was a running habit. Um, I don't run every morning. I, for a while I was running every morning and I'm actually at the point where like the distances that I'm running, it's not conducive to me to run every morning. I need to take better breaks or I'm going to, I'm going to injure myself. And that's happened where I've, I've overdone it and then I can't run for a couple days, but whatever it is, pick something that you think is going to be beneficial to your life. You know, whether it's physical, spiritual, mental, whatever the, the arena that you want to do, you know, we've talked about this two minute prayer challenge, a similar kind of an idea, pick whatever it is and just start small and build up. And for me, this has been such a nice change of pace. No, no pun intended on the the running pace thing, but <laughs> it's been so encouraging to me to just see how God has enabled me day by day to put in the work and then to reap the benefits. 
but I can still point to God and say like, God has given me the the ability to do this. He's given me the, like the breath uh-huh. in my lungs. He's given me the muscles in my legs to be able to do this. So I don't know that there's much more like to say about that. I'm just affirming for me, it was a running habit, but I'm affirming, I'm affirming the concept of just identifying a habit you want to build that contributes to the identity that you want to have and then just getting after it. Like there's no secret. We were joking around beforehand. Like the only thing that stopped me from being a runner before was me not wanting to do run, like not, not wanting to put in the work to run. Like that was the only thing. Obviously like some people have like a physical um, disability or an injury or some sort of other health condition that prevents them from doing this kind of exercise that didn't describe me. I just didn't want to do the work. So, and part of it was, I was trying to bite off too much at one time. So when I started small and just build up from there, I was actually really surprised when all of a sudden I realized like I could just run a mile if I want to, like that's, that's something I could probably do. And I never saw myself as a person who could just go out and run a mile or a mile and a half. Um, when I wanted to, I just never saw myself that way. And now you know, when we were on vacation in Ocean Grove, I was able to run a mile almost every day, just right on the boardwalk next to the ocean. And that's something I never would have been able to do. That's that's an experience that I would never have had if I hadn't just sort of set aside the time and the energy and the mental capacity to teach myself and train myself how to do this. So I really think that this is turning into a, a affirmation of atomic habits, but I really think everybody who is interested in this kind of thing I actually think the Atomic Habits book is like a good primer for Christian devotion life, like a devotional life, because so much of Christian devotion, I don't mean like devotional, like devotional practices, you know, like, I mean, so much of being a Christian and living a devoted life is incremental, small improvements that are probably not um, discernible on a small scale right? We, we get up and we read the Bible every morning. And if you do a certain amount of time, you're going to make it through the whole Bible in a day. I don't think most people would think that reading two or three chapters or reading for 10 or 15 minutes every morning is some huge accomplishment. But to be able to say that in the past five years, I've read the, read the Bible five times, that's an accomplishment. That's a big deal. That That is something that takes every day doing it for 15 minutes. So that's what I'm affirming is taking the time to identify a habit that you want to build and then just putting in the work to build, start small and build up from there. I think there's a great word of encouragement in that affirmation. And that is no matter what it is, whatever you're able to do, the fact if God has given you a body in which he's blessed to allow for some movement, that it is a great opportunity to take advantage of that, whatever it is, it could be running or walking or swimming or biking all these things, the movement of the body, which God has given us, again, we're, we're not deconstructionists. We're saying there's great value in the physical creation that God has made. And that someday when we are glorified in perfection, we'll be restored with our bodies in perfection. And who knows how fast and where we'll run then, right? Because all this will be a totally different experience. Until then, though, the ability to move and to exercise is a great gift. And sometimes I think it is, especially in Western cultures, one that's underemphasized. It's okay to say, I think that it's worth doing that, trying things. And there's lots of ways you can do that. We've talked a lot on this podcast about running in particular. And there is something to be said there that I'm going to go out on a limb and say, there is something unique about running that does help us to understand the Christian life. And I'm just drawing from Paul on this. And when you and I were talking before we started recording, 
you in particular talked about the mental part of running. Yeah. What it means, it's oftentimes less about the body, but disciplining the mind to say, even though my muscles are burning, even though I might feel tired and uncomfortable, I can keep going. I know I can keep going. I yeah. want to keep going. And so, you know, Paul uses a very explicit and specific metaphor there. And of course, on purpose, he's very surgical in the way that he describes the gospel and the Christian life. It's very pointed. So as a general encouragement, go out and move around and do your thing. And as a specific encouragement, if you're the kind of person that thought, you know what, I could never do that. The chances are you might and probably can do that. Yeah. And websites like couch5k.com, like the best way to say this is like, listen, maybe you want to go out and run 5K, which is 3.1 miles and do it as part of a race. And maybe you thought, you know, I could never run in a race. And, you know, of course, what Paul calls us to do is to run in a race. And this yeah. is different. Of course, we're talking about the physical well-being, but it is something that's probably within your grasp. If only we change our understanding of who we are. And the last thing I'll say to your point, Tony, is that this is the good news of the gospel, that at some point there is a moment in which you become justified. And in that moment, your identity is wholly reversed. It's completely changed. Now you are part and parcel of the kingdom of God. You are adopted into the family of God. You are made alive together with Christ. And in that moment, you are changed. And so what we understand the gospel pushes upon us is to say, you don't need no, you, like you do all of these works because you are no longer saved by them. And yeah. so whereas there is no room for grace in works, there are room again, like I've said before, for works in grace. And so when we are changed in that way, we understand that we behave like Christians because we are Christians, not the other way around. It's yeah. a very powerful change in a paradigm shift in the way in which we understand the world. That's the truth. The yeah. latter part is the truth there. So I like that. Everybody go out and, and do your thing. Go for a walk. Take us on a walk. Yeah. Listen to us while you walk or run yeah. or bike. Well, and I think, you know, like the thing that was so powerful for me about this Atomic Habits method, and I, I think... I'm going to tie this back into the Christian faith, but one of the things that this 1% improvement methodology that Atomic Habits advocates is, you know, you can do, so let's say it's Monday, you do a certain amount on Monday. On Tuesday, the idea is you do 1% more. You know, you can do that because you did the same amount, you did more or less the same amount the day before. And the way that this ties into the Christian life is like, when you have confidence that you can accomplish what God has empowered you and enabled you and sustained you to accomplish, some of that, and this is part of why throughout the Bible, when God wants to encourage his people, what does he do? He points back to his, his deliverance in the past, right? When God wants to encourage the, the exiles in Babylon, he brings forth prophets who remind them that, that he rescued a people out of Egypt, right? So in the Christian life, there are a number of scriptures that we look at and then our own life experience of God's faithfulness that show us that we know we can continue to persist in the faith in large part because we are persisting in the faith now, right? So like James, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of every kind, because you know that by the testing of your faith, um, God develops steadfastness. Steadfastness leads to perfection so that you're lacking in nothing. When I'm struggling with a tough situation, I can look at that and say, man, this is really, really hard, but 
I can count it all joy because I know that God developed steadfastness in me because of this. And it's a similar kind of thing for me to look at and go, man, you know, 1.5 miles, that feels really, really bad. But two days ago I did 1.4 and 1.5 is not that much harder. Like 1.5 is not that much more. It's another, what is that? That's another, you know, 15, 20, you know, whatever. It's a very small increase in the grand scheme of things. And that's what it is. Like that's, that's why I think this can be so powerful from a spiritual perspective is because the reason I know that I can, um, resist a certain temptation is first and foremost, because God has empowered me to resist that temptation, right? God, God has given me the ability to resist sin. That's, that's the first thing that I should look at when I'm facing a sin that I'm trying to, trying to battle, or maybe it's not a sin. Like maybe it's developing a devotional practice, whatever it is. God has empowered me to do this. He's given me what I need in the scripture and in my own spiritual life by the indwelling of the spirit to do what it is that he's expecting me to do. Not perfectly, not uh, completely, but he has empowered me to please him by serving him. But also, you know, like when I wake up in the morning and it's a struggle for me to read my Bible. And it feels like, oh man, 10 minutes, that's just a lot. I'm just so tired. I don't have time for that. I can look at it and go, well, I made time yesterday. I figured it out yesterday. I figured it out the day before, right? I, I was able to fit it in there and actually like it was great. I, I started my day and I was able to fit in my Bible reading and I felt good about that and that encouraged me. And it almost never fails that at some point during the day, I encounter something that the the scripture that I was reading that morning, there's encouragement in that. So I can look at those realities of what happened yesterday, and then I can apply them today, right? What happened yesterday, if I do the same thing today, it's likely to have the same outcome. Maybe not guaranteed, but it's likely. So I think any kind of habit that you're building, for me, it's been running. It's just really, really illustrative of the Christian life, right? Paul uses the metaphor of a race, like you've pointed out. He uses the metaphor of physical training of some good, but spiritual training is is of you know of good. I just think we need to we need to recognize that we we gotta start small and we gotta get after it. That's I mean, that's like the basis of it. We start with small, practical things and we just grow and develop that over time. Yeah, I agree with you. That last thing I'll add to that because we're like way, way over on <laughs> miles. But this is how we do. Uh, it's all free, loved ones. Yeah. Is the only thing I quibble with uh in that book is something that actually the unbeliever doesn't have, but the believer does, to your point. So the whole argument is if you become one percent better per day, then what happens is those small changes they aggregate up, they accumulate right. and they compound against each other by the end of the year you would be 37% better. Now, that math is based on this idea that you take one plus 0.01, that's 1% per day, you raise it to the power of 365, you're saying that I'm going to accumulate that over 365 days, you subtract one, you get 37% uh, rounded up. The problem with this is, for the unbeliever, I actually think this can be debilitating because it, what yeah. it means is that you must keep every prior day's gain if you lose a prior day's gain, you will not achieve that level. So if you think, well, I'm going to be better today by just this incremental or marginal level, but then tomorrow you have to be better as well with the previous day's gain. And by route 45 days, all of the 44 previous day's gains, you must keep with you. If you lose one, you lose it all. God gives us the indicative and the imperative. So when he says, when Paul talks about moving from glory to glory, that is the compounding effect. And God does that in our lives as we yield and submit to him in such a way that we don't have to worry about continuously trying to perform in a meritorious way to carry forward those gains. Yeah. But God continues to work in us 
So that is the difference. And those things are achievable, but it's only because God is compounding that effect for us because he's good and gracious. And he has the wherewithal and the staying power to make sure that accumulates up. So that's the difference. And that's the really unique benefit and privilege of what it means to be a child of Christ. Yeah. We should, uh, we should probably talk about our topic at some point, huh? Yeah, let's talk about the topic. And let me start again, as is our custom with the Lord's Prayer. This is from Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Jesus says to us this. Let's all listen. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The one thing that's clear in this that we talked about a little bit last week that sets us up for this conversation is that all of us live in an incredibly wicked world. And it's vain to expect that we can escape some kind of ill treatment, however carefully we live our lives and behave. So to know how to conduct yourself when you're ill-treated is of this great value to the soul. And Christ comes now and teaches us that by impounding it in the Lord's Prayer. So whereas we talked about what it means to understand that we have debts and that there are debts that are against us, now I think it's appropriate for us to talk about, well, what does this forgiveness actually mean? What does it look like then knowing that we will be ill-treated and that Christ commands us to have already, in a sense, have forgiven the debt that is against us that we might rightfully claim against others? What does that mean? So I think in the time that remains for us, we're probably going to talk about, of course, what that means and then also the converse, what it doesn't mean, because I think that's really important in a context of forgiveness and talking about that, what forgiveness is, but also what it is definitely not. So let's start with what is forgiveness, especially the kind of forgiveness that Christ presumes that we're going to undertake when we pray to him in the Lord's prayer. Yeah. And I think it, it bears saying that this, the, I shouldn't necessarily say the definition of forgiveness, but like the nature of forgiveness and maybe the necessary conditions that constitute forgiveness is something that there actually is a little bit of debate about. And so the, there's kind of two broad categories, right? There's the people who would say forgiveness is something that resides entirely within the, the offended individual, right? So somebody offends me, they sin against me, and I have the total unilateral ability apart from that person's perception, reception, response, apart from them entirely, forgiveness resides entirely within my choice. That's one perspective. The other perspective, or one of the other perspectives, is that forgiveness actually has a component that resides in both parties, right? So so this perspective would say something like, I can offer forgiveness, or I can be prepared to forgive, but until that person has received forgiveness, there's a, there's a reality to this forgiveness that hasn't been fully actualized. I think it's important for us to recognize both of those perspectives because both of them have some merit to them, right? It's not as though one of them is, is obviously false and one is obviously true. Some of this depends on how we define forgiveness, which is what we're getting at. There are those who would define forgiveness as basically the idea that when someone sins against me or offends me, that creates some sort of relational debt, it creates some sort of relational um, 
balance that has been disrupted. And so I have the ability as the one who is offended to choose not to collect that debt, to no longer hold that debt against another person. That's one way that it's it defined. And again, there are, there are good um, biblical reasons. There's philosophical reasons. There's just sort of practical, everyday common sense reasons to think that that's the case. Then the other definition is that forgiveness has to do with restoring the relational um, connection, right? Or the relational um, interface. I don't know if you want to call it that. But the idea that I can choose not to hold something against somebody, but that may not be full forgiveness or may not be forgiveness until that person has actually received that new disposition that I hold towards them. So when I'm sinned against, I could either have a disposition where I'm going to hold that sin against them, or I can have a disposition where I'm not going to hold that sin against them. But if they are not in a position where they've received the reality of my new disposition towards them, then that forgiveness is not fully actualized. Now, we talked about forgiveness I don't even remember which episode it was, but it was it was in the single digits for sure. Um right. it may have been in it, I'm sorry, it was in the double digits for sure. It may have been in the single digits actually now that I think about it. It was one of the earliest episodes we did. And my position for a long time has been that forgiveness is not a unilateral thing. It's not something that I on my own, apart from the person who's offended, can bring into existence. It's not just about how I think about the other person, but it's about the way that that other person thinks about the sin that they've committed against me or the offense that they've committed against me. I have lots of brothers and sisters who would would hold a different view. I have I have respect for that view. I understand that view, but I just I don't I don't see that as a reasonable philosophical or practical position because there's been so many times in my life where someone has sinned against me and I go to them and I say, I forgive you for this sin. And they go, there's no sin. Right. And that relational divide that was caused by their sin is not changed in any realistic way. It's not, not affected. It's not changed. It's not improved. It's not anything. If anything, sometimes that actually makes the, the relational division worse. So I think this is a really tough question to ask, and it's central to understanding what it is that we mean when, or what it is that Christ means when he says forgive, you know, he commands us to pray that God would forgive our debts as we have forgiven those who are forgiven our debtors or forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, is we have to understand what it means for us to forgive those who have trespass against us or to forgive the debts of those who have debts against us or we have debts against, we have to understand what that means if we're to understand how we are to pray that and what that prayer means. And as we talked about last time, if we're going to lean into the use and give at least some like minor hegemony to the idea of debt, then we recognize that debt means one party has a legitimate and legal claim on the other. So if Christ is asking us to forgive our debtors, what he's essentially saying, at least by way of just a strict definition there, is that if you believe you have a legitimate claim on somebody else, you give that up, you yield it, you submit it over. And so in this way, I think it's clear that in the prayer, we don't want to confuse and get twisted this idea of like forgiveness and reconciliation. Those things sometimes have some overlap, but they often get convoluted. Our Lord here, I don't think, doesn't mean that offenses against the law of the land or the good order of society 
are just to like be passed over in silence. Right. It doesn't mean that like people are allowed to like, commit thefts and assaults with impunity. I think in the prayer, all he means is that you are in a very simple way to actually study, to embrace a general spirit of mercy and forgiveness towards your brothers. Yeah. You're to bear much. You're to put up with much rather than quarrel. You're to look over much, to submit to much rather than to have any strife. You're really to like lay aside everything like malice, strife, revenge, retaliation, all those feelings, those belong to unbelievers, but they are completely unworthy of yeah. the disciple of Christ. When we kind of strip it down to first principles, I think what we find there in this prayer is a lot for us to work on where we don't need to worry about parsing out the difference between identity and harmony, reconciliation yeah. and forgiveness. What Christ is calling us to here is to say, listen, you may think, and the world may tell you that if you feel offense, if you think somebody's wronged you, then you have a claim on them in some way. And he's saying, renounce that claim. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences. It doesn't mean that because you extend forgiveness by way of this prayer, that it means that everything is fine and there's a restoration of relationship or character yeah. or trust. It doesn't mean any of those things. In fact, one would argue it means those things will still be outside the bounds of what forgiveness means. But it does mean that in your heart, in your clear conscience, there is no strife. There's no sense of revenge. There's no daydreaming about what you might say or telling this person off or putting them on blast. It means you're willing to give all that up because all of that, that retribution, that justice belongs to God. And what God is saying is through Jesus Christ, turn it over to me when you pray this way. Yeah. And I think the way that I've, I've stated this in the past, um, because I, I, I do hear the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I think that's important, but I also sometimes I want to be careful how I frame this. I sometimes hear the idea that like just being willing to not hold someone's sin against them, that that's all that forgiveness constitutes and that's all it requires. And I'm, I'm not, I'm just not, I'm not super convinced that that's actually what the Bible says. So here's, here's, I want to actually go to the scriptures because I think a lot of times in these conversations, um, the scriptural witness and the scriptural commands that surround forgiving our brothers and sisters are not always brought to bear. So I'm looking at uh, Matthew chapter 18, which is of course where we go to talk about church discipline, but right. there's something important in, um, in this section that teaches us about the nature of Christian forgiveness, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to skip over the part on, on discipline because we've talked about that before, but it is really important to the context. So everything we've talked about Christian discipline before we did a full episode on that, go back and listen to that. That's verses uh, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Peter's response to this teaching is starting in verse 20 when he says, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. This is often used, I think, by proponents of what I guess I'm calling the unilateral view of forgiveness. This is used to say, you just let it go infinitely. You always just let it go. And that's what true Christian forgiveness is. Peter is asking the question of how many times should I forgive my brother and sister or sister in response to Christ's teaching that when you confront from someone with sin and they receive that confrontation and repent as a result of it, that final state is what, what Peter is talking about when he says forgive. So 
It is not to say, and I want to be very clear about this, that is not to say that every single sin or offense that someone has against you, every time that someone offends you, that you have to go through this rigid Matthew 18 process to resolve that. Some things we're called to just let go, mostly because they actually don't matter. They're actually not really things that should offend us or, or sins that actually are against us. They're, they're slights against us that are mostly perceived slights. But Peter's response, I think, is instructive for us because what he understands when he says, how many times should I forgive my brother? He's not understanding this as how many times should I just let a sin go unilaterally without without reference to what the other person does. He's saying, how many times should I have to confront a sinner who has sinned against me? and have them respond in repentance. How many times can that process play out? How many times do I have to let that process play out? And Christ's answer is, in effect, there is no limit, right? 70 times seven is just sort of a figurative way to say, however many times you think is the right number, multiply that by 10, right? When we talk about forgiveness, especially between Christians, forgive how we forgive a non-Christian, I think that is a different a conversation for a different day, right? Because we're talking about different categories and right. they don't even understand the concept of forgiveness. It's a totally foreign category. They may think they do, but just like love or sacrifice, they don't really get those concepts. They have some idea that they've stolen from the Christian worldview, but they don't fully get that. But when we're talking about forgiveness between Christian brothers and sisters, I can have a posture that is ready to let my brother, release my brother or sister from the relational debt that they've incurred. I can have that posture. And I think that's, I think that is in line with what you're saying, right? Our hearts should be ready and willing and able by the power of the Holy Spirit to not hold a person, uh, not hold a person's um, sin against them, not to create a record of wrongs, not to be prepared to exact justice, not to be prepared to demand revenge or to man- demand compensation. That is the posture of a Christian heart. I believe that that is what we are commanded to do when it says we are to to forgive our brothers and sisters. But I don't think that we can consider forgiveness as a process to be fully complete unless the forgiveness is received. The other place that I'll go on this, right? God purposed, this is the other argument that I sometimes hear in favor of the unilateral view, which I think I just coined that. I've never heard anybody call it that, but that's what I'm calling it. The argument I often hear is, well, we should forgive the way God forgives, right? And isn't that, I mean, that in effect is what we're asking God to do in the, the, the Lord's Prayer. We're asking God to forgive us the way that we've forgiven others. So our understanding of how God forgives us is intimately related to how we understand forgiving other people. I've often heard it said that God forgives us without condition on our side. That is a true statement to a certain extent. But when we back that up into the broader picture, God purposed in eternity past to forgive us for our sins, right? Every person who is, is, has ever been justified and will ever be justified, God purposed for that to come to be in eternity past from all eternity. But that doesn't actually come to be until the person has received that justification by faith. So while it's true that God purposed to forgive me of my sins in infinity past, in eternity past... My sins weren't actually forgiven me until I actually received that forgiveness, right? Christ died on the cross for me 2000 years ago, but the benefits of those of that death and resurrection was not applied to me until I received it by faith. So I think it's much more complicated to understand it this way. 
it would certainly be simpler, I think, to just say like, forgiveness is just not, not holding people's sins against them. But forgiveness in this understanding is also an active process, right? Peter responds to this saying, how many times do I have to go? If we, if we implant verse 15 into what he says, it reads this way. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I will go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens, I've won back my brother. How often do I have to do that? That's an active process, right? So forgiveness has this active component that I think we need to recognize if we're going to really understand the nature of forgiveness in a proper biblical fashion. I think that's helpful in transitioning then to this idea of what is it not? Because I think sometimes, again, we get that kind of amalgamated with this ideas of restoration and reconciliation. And it's, it might be sometimes helpful to define them more narrowly and to understand them in the context in which they're presented to us. So, of course, like if you've had some, let's say, like geometry in school, you're probably reminded that all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. And so like there's a similar relationship exists between forgiveness, trust, and reconciliation. All trust and reconciliation are rooted in forgiveness, but not all forgiveness results in trust and reconciliation. And we can't get away from the fact that here, Jesus is commanding us by way of this example prayer to pray in this way. And it comes with a presumptive close. So if you're going and you're shopping for some kind of motor vehicle and you're sitting across from the finance guy, finance insurance guy, or you're dealing with a salesman and they say something to you like, as you're just expressing interest in the car and they say, how are you going to pay for this today? That's already presumed that you've made the decision that you're going to purchase it. I mean, that's a technique in which to emphasize that this ought to be expected. It's normative. It's default position, as you were saying. And so God does that for us. And so I think we can admit that again, forgiveness is not necessarily trust or reconciliation. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's certainly not saying that like, because you have done this thing that therefore I have to erase this from my mind. Even Jesus himself, when he cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing when he's crucified on the cross. There is a sense in which the inspired recording of those events are still recorded. And so even though he asked for that prayer, we're acknowledging that forgiveness is not somehow just disavowing all these things. This is not like men in black. That might be an outdated reference at this point, but <laughs> your mind isn't erased from what happened to you, especially if it's hurtful. Yeah. Forgiveness is definitely not making an excuse for someone. And I, th I think we've kind of like danced around that, but it's not liberty or license to behave in some kind of way. That's not, I believe, clearly what Jesus is asking for here. And it's also not let somebody off the hook. And it's certainly not pretending that we're not hurt by something that took place. So I think actually what we have in here is this consummate coming together of this disposition, which says the Christian worldview is intensely radical. And part of that radical nature is in what it means to forgive even in light of all these things that we hold together in balance and in complete parity, that you there is a sense in which it is right to be hurt. It is right to not let somebody off the hook, like you're saying, to confront continually that this was legitimate sin and offense. And it is certainly not saying, well, because I forgive you, yeah, just do what you want to do. Right. Continue to walk over me. I'm a doormat. I have no value in God. It's not that at all. It's this radical nature, though. And it is this disposition, I think, that says that it's possible for you to relinquish that right to submit and to yield, even as so much as you feel this persecution on your part, even if only mentally, because this is what God honors. It is the heart that says, I will not hold this against you, despite and maybe even against the response of the other person. Because again, the identity and harmony are two separate things. So there is a lot, you're right, for us to wrestle with here. Yeah. 
because I think that we know that we're all going to be wronged, but we also know that even as Christ says to us, forgive others, he's also acknowledging that there will be others who will say to you, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, how dare you? I've done nothing wrong. And you're saying, no, listen, uh, this has hurt me deeply. This has offended me. This has grieved me. This has been destructive to our relationship. Even while the other person is saying, I have done nothing towards you in that way. So what do we do with that? So we're, we're held in tension here and it is worth wrestling. And it's, I think in some ways, really interesting and not altogether unsettling that it comes by way of almost like a passing over comment in the Lord's prayer. There's not a lot of instruction on this at this moment. Of course, we flesh out all of scripture that comes alongside and in, to buttress this particular statement, but it doesn't remove the fact that Jesus just says, gives us as almost and dare I say it like a throwaway saying, as you have forgiven everybody else already. And again, we can point to the Sermon on the Mount and this profound responsibility that's not just like, listen, if you've offended somebody, you ought to go against it. But if you know somebody else has been offended by you, stop. Do not offer the sacrifice. Go right now. Do not pass go. Do not walk. Run to them and speak to them. Reconcile with them. Offer forgiveness. Come before them. This is what it means to have this kind of heavenly, this fatherly influence in your life that is God the Father, is to offer this kind of radical forgiveness, which we ought, we have to agree. We have to submit our logic to yeah. and saying that, God, you are right. And what you proclaim and desire and proclaim that I ought to do, I'm going to do that thing. So this is like high truth, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying that I understand it completely. I do want to try to model it as best I can. And I love that as we talked about, like there's great benefit. And of course, understanding the rubric and this general kind of framework for prayer, but there's also great benefit in just praying these words. I think here, this sentence in particular is one of those places we get great benefit from praying the exact thing. Because while we may not understand it completely and maybe not until we're in glory, we do have something that we just keep hearing in our own voice or in our own mind that says like, forgive, forgive. My objective is to forgive. What does that mean? How do I play that out? I have been wronged in my life. I will be wronged. So what does it mean to forgive? Yeah. So maybe I'll close with this thought. And I've had people push back on me about my view of forgiveness being dependent on the reception on on the part of the one being forgiven. And and what I want to, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to push back against is what I think is sometimes a very shallow view of what forgiveness is. Sure. And, and this shallow view of forgiveness is actually ends up just being a burden, I think, right? So sometimes we are presented with this idea that what forgiveness means is that not only am I willing to say, that I am not going to hold a person's sin against them, but that I somehow am able to um, enable to act as though that sin never happened. And, and I just, don't, that's not realistic. And I don't think that's what the Bible calls for. And I think that's why it becomes kind of a new law. So when you have this relational interaction and you are sinned against, there is this burden now that is placed upon you to, somehow just get over it. Just get over it. It's kind of like what we're told. And I don't, like you're saying, like, that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness right. is not just getting over it. Yes. And while it may be true, and I'll even go so far as to say it is true, that forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. True forgiveness always 
always will lead to true reconciliation, either in this life or in the next when we're talking about Christians, right? So there are Christians that I know that I have relational discord with that that is not resolved. And as much as I'm prepared to and wanting to and and desirous of restoring that relationship, it's not going to happen. Probably. I mean, God can do lots of things. But in the in the last days, in the end times, when all has been set to right, that relationship will be restored, right? So this is what I want to leave with is I think Paul in Romans 12 actually has a lot to say about this. And I don't think that we apply this very often. So I'm reading from verse 12. I'm going to start in verse 14, right? Some of this may not be directly applicable, but I think the context is important. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Here's where it gets to be really specific. Repay no one evil for evil and give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This phrase, we're very quick, I think, to apply it to sort of like Christians who are seeking to live at peace with like the world, right? We say like, if so as far as possible, live at peace with everyone. And so that means like, don't tick off the civil magistrate if you don't have to. Right. But this is in the context of discussion about forgiveness and about God's wrath and about living at unity with one another and rejoicing with, this is all in the context, not exclusively of how we interact with other Christians, but I would say predominantly how we interact with other Christians. This is what I think is the key to understanding forgiveness is that insofar as it is possible on our side of the equation, we live at peace with all people. And at times that just means we have to trust that God is going to balance that equation out in the end. He's going to balance that equation out in the eschaton. That person that I am at odds with in the church that I I have tried my best to try and reconcile with, I'm, I'm doing my best not to hold a grudge, not to take vengeance, not to even take vengeance in my mind by fantasizing about taking vengeance. That doesn't mean that true, full, complete forgiveness has happened because that, that kind of true, complete forgiveness can't happen until the last days, until the end, until everything is set to right. So what I'm trying to push back against, and this is why I'm, I'm belaboring the point so much. When we pray that God would forgive us as we have forgiven others. That is in a certain sense, like an aspirational prayer, because we probably don't actually want God to forgive us the way that he's forgiven. We've forgiven others because our forgiveness is always incomplete. It's always imperfect. So I'm just trying to push back against the shallow. um, Maybe I'll put it this way. The forgiveness that God has called the Christian to is a disposition. It's not an act, right? We are called to have a disposition that is uh, is such that we live at peace with all others as far as it depends on us. That's the disposition we're called to. That disposition should play itself out in individual acts of forgiveness. But at the end of the day, my ability to not hold someone's sin against them or not to fantasize about taking revenge against them, whatever, whatever concrete thing we want to talk about that exemplifies not 
forgiving someone, that is rooted in, and this is like we talked about in the Ten Commandments series, right? The reason we use men's stoves is because that 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 garbage is in our heart and it's going to come out. We're being called to have a posture that is quick to offer forgiveness and to rejoice when that forgiveness is received. But that doesn't mean we have any control whether that forgiveness is received. That's entirely on the other side. We can't be called to affect something that someone else has control over. We're only called to affect what we have control over. And by the power of the Spirit, God's sovereignty, all consider, we have control over the stance that we take towards other people. Right. So that's that's what I'm trying to advocate for. And I think it's really, really key as we pray this to keep that in mind. It's not about the outcome. It's about the the posture of forgiveness that we take, the posture of being willing and ready and rejoicing to release someone else from their sins when they're ready to when they're able to receive that. The same way that God, or in a similar way that God purposed in eternity past and took the posture and did everything that he needed to do to be able to release us of our sins as soon as we receive it by faith. That's what I'm advocating. That's the kind of forgiveness that I think we're asking God for. And that's the kind of forgiveness that I think we need to be a people who exemplify. Whatever your perspective, I hope you'll continue to join us in the viewing car, as it were, as we look out on these amazing scenes that God has given us. And hopefully everybody, and I'm coming to this myself, is just reappreciating, rehearsing the Lord's Prayer and all these beautiful vistas that are contained within it. So I don't know if this is possible, like if you can go out west on a train ride and see, like for instance, like the Grand Tetons. I mentioned like you and us sitting in their car, we're looking out, it's all glass. And so we can see like this full panoramic view and we're commenting on, on both how beautiful and maybe how strange and glorious and dangerous yeah. those mountains seem, as if we were to be placing ourselves on them. And so in that way, there's something to talk about there and to both respect with holy dread and to also appreciate by way of giving God glory. And yet he commands us to pray in this way, says pray this way. And so there's something there that is not a choice. It is a prayer that we have to make yeah. and that we ought to make. And that also classifies and categorizes the true believer who follows closely after their master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a lot to debate and a lot to love and a lot to try to understand. And at the end of the day, a lot to appreciate. So hopefully this will just spur more conversations. You can always join us in that conversation. There's lots of ways you can do that. You can email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com. You can also join our Telegram chat, which is t.me backslash reformbrotherhood. Or, and perhaps the best of all, you can just grab a friend. I was going to say kidnap, but don't do that. You can just <laughs> grab a friend and say, listen, I'd like to take you out for coffee or a beer or some water. And I heard this thing from these two strange guys on the internet, and I've been thinking about forgiveness. I'd like to talk about what that was. Or maybe even better than that, if you were sensing by the power of the Holy Spirit, that there is someone in your life whom you ought to forgive, whom you ought to talk to, who you've long put off having a, a rough and hard conversation. This might be the moment, and not because we said so, but because our Lord and Savior said, pray this way and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Yeah. Well, there's all sorts of other stuff we usually do at the end of the episode, but since we're already at 70 minutes of a projected 60-minute podcast, I'm just going to say this, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Let's love that brother.
There's nothing.